electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Tonight on Last Call, Hollywood in turmoil. Two strikes shutting down Tinseltown. New projections from SpaceX that are just out, and they may blow your mind. The strange but true coincidence that is Apple and AT&T as the telecom giant falls further into turmoil. Spending up, taxes down. The toxic combo that is sending the deficit higher again. And it is Make It Mondays. You're going to meet an entrepreneur who went from broke to a million-dollar bakery. That and much more over the hour. So as always, belly up or buckle up, because last call is up right now. Hello and welcome, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. Great segue there by Jim and Mad Money, because first up on Last Call today is Detroit in dire straits. Ford making a shocking move, cutting the price of its electric F-150 pickup by as much as $10,000. Now, that slams shares because Ford is already losing billions on its electric car and truck business. This despite the fact that the top of the line electric F-150 can cost more than $90 thousand dollars each so now with these price cuts there are worries about even greater losses at ford but let's be fair this is not just a ford or u.s problem general motors said it will lose money in electric vehicles for the next few years and this weekend the ceo vw issued a big warning to employees that costs must come down or more jobs will be cut and any car company not named tesla is struggling to not only sell many electric cars, but actually make any money on the ones they do sell. Shares of Ford and GM are now lower than where they were two years ago, even as the overall market is higher. Remember, this was supposed to be an industry rebirth. Now, I know we talk a lot about EVs on this show, and we are critical of parts of the business. To be clear, this is not some anti-EV stance. As we have said, they are fast and they are fun to drive, and I've driven a lot. But we are critical because Detroit appears to be betting the farm on a business that has not proven it can make any money. And there are thousands or ten thousands or more jobs on the line. The bottom line is, it's not anti-EV. It's pro-Detroit, and we want it and its people to succeed. So let's dive into this and bring in CNBC.com reporter and, by the way, Michigan resident Mike Wayland, as well as auto expert and car coach Lauren Fix. And Mike, and, and, you know, listen, I, and people who don't know me, they don't know what, I've, what cars I've owned. It may surprise them. You know, you and I have talked on and off the record. This is not bashing EVs. When I'm seeing billions of losses, the unions are worried. They're stocking up. They're, they're filling up car dealerships, particularly in places like Michigan. Are your friends, are your colleagues, are your sources, are they growing worried about this path? 
You know, Brian, you mentioned the stock is down 6% day for Ford. And one of the most concerning things is that as early as May, Jim Farley was saying that we are raising the price of F-150 or raising the price of the Ford Transit E, but we're cutting the price of the Mach-E to be comparable and challenge Tesla. The problem with the cutting of the F-150 Lightning is there is currently little to no competition for the Lightning right now. And they had 200,000 reservations and they've only sold 25,000 vehicles in the U.S. So good for consumers, the lower price. But when you've got a company restructuring and that needs the profits of these vehicles, and they've only sold 25,000 out of 200,000 reservations, then they're lowering the price. That's not good. Yeah. And Lauren, to, to Mike's point, you know, you've got the Rivian. OK, the Rivian R1T pickup truck. That's a different beast. Right. If you've seen them, I've driven them both. There's, it's sure. a lot smaller mm-hmm. side by side. But Rivian actually raised prices a couple of years ago. What does it tell you that right. a truck with no current, no current real competition is having to cut prices? Well, I talked to Ford today and I spoke with one of the internals and they tell me that they're scaling. In other words, they said, in quote, Ford says they're scaling production to meet customer demand and they're planning on 150,000 vehicles for this year. And they are claiming that because they're more efficient, that they're going to be able to produce more of them at a lower price. But I spoke with some people in Michigan and there's a 92 day turn. In other words, it means vehicles are sitting on the lot for at least 92 days. Dealers, not just in Michigan, but also in New York, where I live, have said, listen, we, we can't find any interest in EVs, not just the Ford trucks. We're not just beating on Ford. It's yeah. literally any of the electric vehicles. People are saying, and I've driven them all. I've driven all the Rivians. I've driven the Teslas. I've driven them all, and they are fun cars. So we're not beating up on EVs. We're just talking about the fact that there's an infrastructure problem. We can't get enough charging stations, and people are upset about it. Now, yes, there is a $7,500 tax credit, and if you're taking almost $10,000 off the price of a Ford truck, and then you add on your state credit, you could be saving almost $20,000 off the price yeah, but of that yeah, Lauren, truck. Okay, fair enough. You know what? I, I, I'm not going to bash EVs, but I'm going to go after the Ford right. F-150. And I race a Ford-powered car. Right. I love Ford. I love the yeah. company. I know people that live next door to the Fords in places like Gross Point. Yeah. Here's the bottom line. Yeah. The Platinum F-150 can cost $90,000. It has an EPA-listed range of 300 miles, which Motor Trend Magazine says is more like 250. The lower-end one is fifty dollars to $60,000. It goes 200 miles on a charge. If you're towing something, yep. that's 150 miles. What are you going to tow your boat from Detroit to, to <laughs> you know, Walloon Lake in Michigan and stop twice? I don't understand what the industry is trying to do. So, this Brian, is about I mean, Mike, go, ahead, go ahead, Mike. Go, I got on a little rant there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to throw this out there that the truck buyers historically have been the least amount of change. They do not want change in their pickup truck. It's why their loyalty is so high. It's why the companies are very, very particular in what they change in their trucks. And the EVs, they wanted to beat Tesla. They wanted to beat the Cybertruck. GM wanted to beat them. Ford wanted to beat them. So they got these vehicles out there because that is their bread and butter. And they did not want to lose that market share like they did to all the other EVs like they did to Tesla. And they got these out here. And it's still a very, very unproven market. And we're going to see how this pans out. But today I talked with GM executives and I talked to UAW leaders. And GM says we're monitoring it, we're evaluating it, and we'll see what happens. Sometimes they react, sometimes they don't. 
but the UAW is also very cautious about well, moving over to EVs right now. Lauren, Mike just said it's an unproven or uncertain market. I don't know if it is. I think it's right. becoming proven, and it's becoming proven right. that there's a lot of problems. I did a cars.com. Anybody at home yeah. can do this. Go to cars.com or Auto Trader. Put in whatever zip code mm-hmm. you want. Do a couple hundred mile radius search and search for a new or used F-150 Lightning. Hundreds, hundreds come yeah. up. You said 93-day turn on the inventory. Again, I'm not slamming Ford, yeah. but they keep talking about customer demand. Where? If, if there's 93-day inventory, it should be zero days of inventory if demand is that high. Right. Well, I don't think demand is there anymore. I think we have a big issue with people waking up to the fact that there's not enough charging stations. You get to one, it's either not working or it's a low level two. Tesla just partnered with Jim Farley through Ford and with Mary Barra and their Twitter spaces saying, oh, we're going to use their infrastructure. That's great. They use it in Europe and it's basically a low level two charging. So you're not really getting a benefit. If you want the fast charging, you have to buy a Tesla. And now he's got the cyber truck, as we saw the first one roll off the line this week. That's going to cause Tesla's stock to go up. People are going to buy those vehicles because people that buy his product buy a tech item. People that are buying trucks, and I do own a Ford truck, they buy it because they're hauling something. I'm hauling race cars as well. So Uh, I I knew I liked you. Listen, Mike, we got to go. (laughs) I got to go. And I'll be honest, if Ford is watching, I'll I'll buy. I might buy an F-150 Lightning, but you know what I would buy it for? I'd buy it for driving around town to show off that I've got an electric F-150 Lightning. I'm not driving yeah. to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan in the Lightning, which I do. Quickly, Mike, how, how long would it take to charge a big battery like that on a level two charger? I mean, it's it, it, it depends on the battery and the vehicle and the charging. Because as we've seen, a lot of the charging infrastructure isn't there. And if you're charging on even a slow charger, I mean, it could take hours and hours and yeah. hours. And a lot of people don't have that time. When I was driving it um, yeah. through Michigan, it charged, I think it cost me $55 on a fast charger, and I got maybe 30% of the battery back, but that was after an hour and a half. People, so, I mean, it can take a while, yeah. and it's people not, like their time. It, and by the way, people, it's not free. People think it's free. It is not free. Nope. No, it is, it is not free. But a great discussion. We're rooting for you, Detroit. We love you, Detroit. We want Detroit to win and succeed. Lauren, Mike, thank you very much. All right, in the meantime, and that includes the Lions, by the way. The electric lions. Here's what happened to your money today. Nice start to the week. All the major averages moving higher. NASDAQ up nearly 1%. And by the way, we keep watching small caps. They were the biggest winner again today. Keep your eye on the Russell 2000. And single stocks, the biggest winner of the day was First Solar, jumping 8%. The biggest decliner, Verizon, down 7.5%. One of many telecoms got whacked today. And by the way, we're going to have much more on the recent cell phone stock woes later in the hour. But on deck... You won't believe how much SpaceX is expected to make next year. Plus, the numbers DC does not want you to hear and why the deficit is starting to rise again. And Hollywood at a standstill as the fight over streaming shakes up the industry. How long could the fight last? One of TV's top producers joins you next. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. 
Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. All right, time for tomorrow's news tonight. Some of the headlines that you're going to be talking about tomorrow morning, CNBC style. First up, BlackRock has announced its newest board member, and it is Amin Nasser. That is the president and CEO of Saudi oil giant Aramco. In a statement, BlackRock's board has said the decision, quote, reflects the importance of the Middle East on BlackRock's long-term strategy. And it's another apparent win for Mr. Elon Musk. According to the information, SpaceX is expecting to bring in about $8 billion in revenue this year. That is roughly double the amount from last year. It also says it will post a pop in operating profit this year. You go, Elon. All right, joining us now for more on SpaceX is Corey Weinberg, senior reporter for The Information, one of the reporters who broke the story. So, Corey, welcome to having you on. How does SpaceX make money? Very good question. SpaceX makes money through uh, rocket launches where it's bringing things up into space for governments and and uh, other companies. And increasingly, it's making money on its Starlink business, and which is satellite Internet. That's kind of the area of business that is newer, that investors are starting to get excited about. Uh, we've known for a while that it has this kind of dominant uh, near monopoly position in rocket launches. And now I think what's accounting for more of the growth, um, not just those launches, but a whole new satellite Internet service. Yeah, great job breaking the story, by the way, Corey. I mean, how big of a surprise is like how how big of a, a variance over what was expected are these numbers? It's a good question. I uh, the people I talk to were surprised by how by at least one measure of profit profitable SpaceX was. Uh, so what we reported is, is, is it expects to have about three billion in EBITDA this year. Um Obviously, that excludes a very important expense for a capital-intensive business like SpaceX. It includes depreciation, uh, but still, I don't. I hadn't been hearing a lot of like uh, actual chatter that would have said like, "Oh, SpaceX is actually way more profitable than you might expect." Um, but uh, so, yeah. At the same time, I was pretty surprised by by these numbers. With that, with that caveat. Yeah, but uh, good news, I guess, for SpaceX employees and the long-term outlook of space travel. Corey, thank you very much. Have a great night. Thanks. All right, still ahead, Hollywood burning, and not because of the weather. Two huge strikes shutting down all TV and movie production. Producer Gavin Pallone, who's behind big hits like Curb Your Enthusiasm and Zombieland, will join us next. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. 
All right, Hollywood summer bummer continues with an entirely new plot twist. The industry's writers and actors took to the picket lines together today, and this strike may continue for a long time. Revenue from streaming media is a red-hot topic. Julia Borston joining us once again from L.A. Julia. Well, Brian, there are no signs of progress towards a compromise between the studios and the writers and actors on issues including compensation from streaming as well as protections around artificial intelligence. Sources tell me this strike will take months, not weeks. The economic impact of a combined actors-writer strike is estimated at $4 billion by the Milken Institute. Now, that is if the strikes last another 30 to 60 days. Obviously, it would cost more if the strikes last longer. Barry Diller, IAC chairman and industry veteran, warned on CBS's Face the Nation the potential for devastating effects, saying that if the strikes drag on until Christmas, consumers could start to cancel subscriptions, hurting media companies' revenue and their ability to ramp up spending when a strike ends, saying, quote, these conditions will potentially produce an absolute collapse of an entire industry. Earlier today, I asked one of SAG-AFTRA's negotiating members what he thought of Diller's warning. I think he's right. If it drags on, it's going to be bad. And I think the AMPT, AMPTP has to wake up and, and realize that all of the collateral damage uh, that they are causing uh, needs to stop. We are in working class people. We stand with everybody who's a working class person who's simply trying to pay their rent. Meanwhile, the AMPTP, the Association of Studios, stands by a statement from last week saying that it, quote, offered historic pay and residual increases, substantially higher caps on pension and health contributions, addition protections, shortened, period, shortened series option periods, and a groundbreaking AI proposal. The AMPTP adding today, quote, the claim made by SAG-AFTRA leadership that the digital replicas of background actors may be used in perpetuity with no consent or compensation is false. Now, as for how the various media companies are positioned for this strike, Netflix shares rose about 2% today on two analyst notes, both of which were bullish on the streamer's positioning compared to other media companies, citing its international exposure, its show backlog, and also its efforts to crack down on password sharing. Meanwhile, Disney, Paramount, and Warner Brothers Discovery, all of those stocks traded lower, Paramount Global down by nearly 4%, um, on concerns that Paramount could feel the most impact because it does not have the diversification of theme parks that CNBC's parent company Comcast and Disney both have. Now, we'll surely learn more about the impact of the strike when Netflix reports earnings that is set for Wednesday afternoon. Brian? Is any movie that's in production, is it, they're all shut down. If you, You're going to be a week away from wrapping and it's over, like Brad Pitt's F1 movie I heard. They just said, you know, whack, not going to do it. It's over. There have been various films that have been shut down. And it's important to remember, Brian, that when the writers struck, if there was a film that or a series that could get away with not having writers on set, that was already very complicated. But um, there were some films that did continue some production, some series that did continue some production um, without having the writers. But once you have actors not, not working anymore, then everything shuts down. And remember, it's not just their performances, but also the fact that now they can't go and do voiceover recordings. They can't do reshoots if a scene didn't turn out right. Yeah. Uh, and then you won't see actors on the red carpet promoting their films. None of that. By the way, loved your Danny Trejo interview. I mean, when you said, are you worried about artificial intelligence? He said, I'm worried about regular intelligence, which I just, that was a legendary, I don't know, who was he on the phone with? The governor? 
He was calling Gavin Newsom, the governor of California. He called the governor as we were starting our interview, and he left him a message and, and asked him to call him back. Well, there, Danny, if he, if he calls you back, let us know what he said. Julie Borston, thank you very much. All right, so let's take this conversation to your next guest. Joining us now is longtime executive producer for Curb You Enthusiasm, Conan O'Brien's manager as well, and that is another Gavin. Gavin Pallone. Gavin, thank you. Uh, this is a serious topic. It, you think the other Gavin, Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, could do anything? Like, is there anybody who can intervene in this and mediate a solution both sides are happy with? I don't think the governor can have an effect on it. Um, I think that uh, at the moment, um, it's going to be stasis for quite some time. I think that the strike right now is sort of benefiting the streamers and the studios uh, because they don't have as much money going out the door and nobody's canceling their subscriptions. And I don't think a governor calling and saying, hey, you guys get back together uh, is going to carry any weight. This is not, and we haven't had a dual strike since 1960, but there have been some other strikes in the middle. This is not like them, is it, Gavin? I mean, given that streaming is it, it's an entirely, you know, we were just talking about electric cars, right? And we're trying to analyze the problems and what's going on. This is an entirely new thing, and nobody seems to know how to do it profitably. Uh, there's too much competition, and that's the problem. Uh, there needs to be consolidation. As you know, your parent company has a streamer that lost $3 billion in the last report. Uh, uh, Warner Media, which owns Max, is losing money. Um, only Netflix is making money at this point in time. I think that um, sometimes these events serve to uh, help the marketplace by forcing companies to possibly join together and get to an equilibrium that's manageable and profitable for everybody. So that might happen here. Yeah, Gavin, let's talk about another another problem. Hopefully this, this strike will be so settled and solved and figured out and people will be able to uh, make more money and everybody can kind of come out winning. The latest Mission Impossible movie, it set a new record for the franchise with its five-day numbers. Tom Cruise movie brought in about $80 million since its release on Wednesday. As good as that may sound, it did fall a little short of some expectations, maybe a little light relative to the previous Mission Impossible release. All right, you have produced several popular movies. Um, this isn't the first blockbuster to recently fall short of expectations, Indiana Jones and the, the Dial of Doom or whatever it's called uh, is not doing well either. What's, what's going on with the movie side, the movies that, that have been finished? Well, I think streaming has an effect on that too. Technology, technology has changed uh, the marketplace. Uh, it really takes a lot to get an audience to get out and see a movie when they can watch it at home on their uh, $600, 75-inch uh, uh, television that they got uh, at Costco. And maybe that's just the new normal. One place where there probably needs to be consolidation or just fewer of is theaters. Um, I don't know how the, the theatrical uh, distribution business is going to work in the future, but certainly I don't think it's there's going to be another boom time like there was in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, you have to be pretty motivated to get yourself out pay the money it costs to go to a movie theater, park your car, and eat overpriced popcorn. And I think more people are going to say, hey, I'm watching a great thing on Netflix or Paramount Plus, and I'm going to stick with that unless I really have to do it. And Mission Impossible got great reviews. When you look at the Indiana Jones movie, less so. 
And so that's why the the uh, earnings for that movie have not kept up with uh, what they needed to be in order to recover a very large production cost. Yeah, maybe things have have changed for a long, long time, or I hate to use the term forever, but maybe forever. Yeah, yeah. it's not going to go away. I mean, there was no, a time- No, it won't, you know, but it's gonna, it's gonna evolve. Where, where there were a lot of people you know, buying candles and people still buy candles. It's just gonna be more of a specialized kind of thing. Uh, than it than it was in the past, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. Gavin Pallone, really appreciate your views. Thanks for coming on. Anytime, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. I love your show. Absolutely. Thank you. So do we. Thank you, Gavin. <laughs> All right. It is an uncertain time right now in Hollywood, but do you know what happened 68 years ago today? The happiest place on earth opened its doors. That is a video of Disneyland's opening day back in 1955. And as happy as it was, it was a little bit of a wreck. Rides broke down, there were lines, there was even a gas leak. But of course, Mickey Mouse and Walt Disney got their act together and began opening other theme parks around the world. So how much money do they make for Disney? Well, the company banked $28 billion in revenue last year from its theme parks alone. Half of that was on giant turkey legs. That's not true. All right, coming up, what is wrong with AT&T? One of America's most famous companies just won't stop bleeding. All right, let's get out of your last call watch list. And it wouldn't be much of a watch list if Apple was not on the list. It hit new highs again today, and the run may not be done. Morgan Stanley raising its price target on Apple to 220 bucks a share, up from 190 Wow. Now to the opposite of Apple. AT&T just continues to get crushed on Wall Street. Shares down again. And remember, Apple and AT&T, they got a lot of shared history. Do you remember back on June 2nd, excuse me, June 29th, 2007? It's a landmark day for, well, everybody. That was when the first iPhone was released, and AT&T scored the coup that any CEO would dream of, a five-year deal to be the exclusive carrier of the iPhone. Since that day, the iPhone launch changed all of our lives. We just didn't know it then. Apple shares, they're up more than 4,400%. AT&T stock, down by more than half. And it even got worse for AT&T today. Shares hit a 30-year low. Stock fell more than 6% after Citigroup finally downgraded it, citing potential financial risks following a bombshell. Wall Street Journal reported the telecom industry's use of lead-seethed cabling. AT&T now yields nearly 8.25%. To be fair, AT&T is not alone. Shares of Verizon hit their lowest level in 12 years. Meantime, Frontier and Lumen also got hit. And even the Companies that make the big cell phone towers, Crown Castle, SBA, American Tower, they all got hammered today. Last Friday, we reported on how AT&T was one of the worst performing S&P 500 stocks since the year 2000. But given that every one of us uses one of these, a cell phone, maybe more than one, what exactly is going on here? Let's talk about it with Yale School of Management Senior Associate Dean for Leadership Studies, Jeff Sonnenfeld. I know the lead, the lead wire story is huge and big 
and new, but the stock's been going down for 30 years, roughly, Jeff. What's wrong with AT&T? It, it's a great question. The stock's been going down for 30 years. And of course, the lead story, which is a horrible story, is 10 days ago or, you know, it's uh, it's over a week ago. I think a week ago Sunday is so like what in the world is why is it crashing today? There's a tremendous loss of confidence. And by the way, Brian, you get tons of extra credit for coming up with the AT&T Apple parallel. Nobody in TV world would come up with that. However, it's a it's a double edged sword now that you bring it up is that was exactly uh, some of the downfall of AT&T. They had that five-year deal with Apple, and their system couldn't handle it. They could, they had a, a lot of problems with capacity, and part of it is the AT&T wireless network, you'll remember this, was, was kind of woven together and stapled together pieces of McCall Cellular and all these other different pieces, whereas uh, Verizon's was a lot more uh, built up domestically. But, but yeah, on the lead issue, They've got to address that. Uh, it's the communities, the, the lead uh, in the water supply. It's it's awful. With the workers, I think it was since 1910 to 1961 that they were encasing these copper wires with lead, but stopped. in the, So there shouldn't be a lot of workers around today suffering a lot of exposure to that. But they had some for repairs. And Yeah. Well, I, I wish I could take the credit for, for that comparison. That was all my, my genius team. Jeff, credit where credit is due, and the lead, the lead wire story is, a, is another, uh, to your point, it's an environmental and health possible disaster. We've got to remedy that as soon as possible. You, I highlighted management on the introduction for a reason. That's what you do. You call people out. You do a great job at saying, this guy's not doing great, this guy's doing great, whatever. When I look at, and I've never met the man, okay, and I appreciate when he comes on this network. When I look at Randall Stevenson's tenure at AT&T, he got super rich, and the company got bloated with tons of debt. Where do you rank Randall Stevenson? Well, if you put Randall Stevenson, uh, uh, John Stanky, and, and the predecessor to Randall together, you, you don't give these guys the same good grade that you and your team get today uh, for the Apple parallel. Is they, They've had underinvestment in infrastructure for a, a long time, AT&T, uh, just between us, people in telecom would tell you they were the whiners of the industry. They're, they're always wanting government assistance to build out the infrastructure. Uh, Verizon figured out they've got to make the investments initially with Fios and then, of course, major investments uh, in, in 5G. AT&T has been late to the party. Uh, that goes back for you know, a long period of time. Uh, the Sprint, of, uh, well, the Sprint acquisition by T-Mobile was was absolutely brilliant. If anybody gets you know, gets an A plus, it's it's John Ledger, of course, and Mike Siebert, his his partner and successor. Uh, T Mobile was brilliant because it gave them the spectrum they needed. But we have five G. They've underinvested in. They got so distracted by these content plays to to write down. Uh, you know uh, yeah. what? Uh, they wanted to be, they wanted to be TV and movie stars, right? Rather than just making a functional cell phone network. That, that works and it's not sexy. They bought, they loaded up on debt with Warner Brothers and everything else. And then nine months, you know, immediately after getting whacked by the board or, or leaving, Stevenson's successor, who was his number two guy, undoes the whole thing. Undoes no, the entire the number thing. Number two guy, you, you also have to say, and John Stanky, I like him. He's a friend. I love his baritone voice. Uh, however, uh, he was the architect of a lot of this strategy. So we can't just throw Randall under the bus. They were a partnership on this. The, uh, the $16 billion write-down, by the way, of DirecTV is not a content play. It was a boneheaded infrastructure play. They should have been investing, uh, of course, 
it in their cellular network then. Mm-hmm. That was major. And the $45 billion write down of Time Warner, well, they did get a little sandbagged by uh, uh, Macon uh, Delrahim, uh, the head of the antitrust department at the time, because yeah. they're going after a political attack on CNN. This is this was absolutely a disaster. They should have been investing in infrastructure. And when Stanky does, John Stanky does come on this network and talk about the future, he's not crazy. And, ne- and neither uh, is Jesper's. No. I was say, Jeff, we got to go. I don't know, John, but I appreciate him coming on. But he's unwinding what his his former boss did, and that that's a big tell right well, there. Well, now they've got to invest in infrastructure. That's the way to go. 5G is way yeah. underutilized. 60% of the country has it, but hardly anybody's using it. That's it. We'll use it on the way home tonight. Jeff Seinfeld, thank you very much. Appreciate your views. All right, good news. Quicker than the ticker is back. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock and go. MGM and Marriott partnering up in a 20-year deal. The companies will let members for both loyalty programs redeem points for MGM and Marriott stays. Here's Marriott CEO Tony Capuano on CNBC this morning. It's expanding the offerings that are available for our guests. It's really an exciting opportunity. Extreme heat brutalizing the Southwest. Listen to this. Phoenix residents are on their 17th consecutive day temperatures at 110 degrees or more. More than 100 million Americans are under excessive heat advisories. Lionel Messi is officially a Floridian. He was unveiled as the newest member of David Beckham's MLS team, Inter-Miami. Look at that, a massive celebration. As expected, Messi got his number 10 jersey. What the? A first edition, unopened Apple iPhone from 2007 sold for close to $200,000 at auction this past weekend. That is nearly 400 times its original price. Oh, over already. Should have saved that original iPhone. All right, still ahead, your Monday RBI and the budget and deficit numbers. DC does not want you to hear. All right, welcome back. Time now for your RBI. And you may want to sit down for this one because there is something happening in D.C. that's a little bit troublesome. Tax collections are falling. And it's happening at the same time that government spending is rising more than expected, especially for interest payments on the national debt. We know this from the latest budget data that just dropped. And look at this. Tax receipts. That's that far right, that hook down. They've been going down. That's a long-term chart. They've been going down now for a few months and by a lot. In April, total collections were down a staggering 35% from the same month last year. And while of course that sounds like a good thing for you, after all they're, they're taking less of our money, it could be a very bad thing for the budget and the deficit. Because as interest rates have spiked, interest costs on our national debt are spiking as well. Federal Reserve data shows what the government is spending on interest is now over $900 billion per year, clearly headed toward $1 trillion in interest. That is up from just over $500 billion three years ago and more than a doubling from 10 years ago. This toxic combination of higher rates and spending and lower tax collection is causing the deficit to move back up. Treasury data shows the government has spent more than $200 billion more per month than it is taking in in at least five months this fiscal year. In March, spending was $378 billion more than what was collected. Look at these comparisons. In May of last year, the government only, air quotes, spent $66 billion more than it took in. 
This May, $240 billion. June wasn't much better with a monthly deficit jump of about $140 billion. All right, a lot of big numbers there. What is the bottom line? Well, according to financial commentary firm the Cobasi Letter, if this spending and tax collection trend continues, our leaders in D.C. are on pace to add another $18 trillion to the national debt in just 10 years. That's as much new debt in a decade as it took to accumulate over 100 years. Higher taxes? Anyone? Random and hopefully interesting. All right, let's stay on this topic and bring in former Democratic Senator and CNBC contributor Heidi Heitkamp and former Council of Economic Advisors acting chair under President Trump, Tyler Goodspeed. Senator Heitkamp, again to you. Uh, I know a lot of this is projections. You project one thing on spending. You project another thing on tax receipts. Sometimes they line up, sometimes they don't. These numbers are way out of whack. Well, what would suggest, Brian, that they're wrong? Absolutely nothing. We're in this trajectory where people have just assumed that debt doesn't matter. And when debt doesn't matter, the numbers go up and the demographics aren't on our side. You look at workforce participation, you look at productivity, and then you go ahead and take a look at what it's going to cost us to provide Medicare and Medicaid to baby boomers, especially when new drugs are coming out for Alzheimer's. And so those projections may, in fact, be optimistic. And it's unsustainable. It is not something that we can ignore any longer. We have to address debt and deficit. But both sides are equally responsible for this. And no one wants to really tell the American public the hard truth. You can't keep spending and reduce taxes and expect the fiscal policy of the United States to be sound. Well, and I, I, I agree with Senator Heitkamp, Tyler. It's, it, you know, there's no party that seems to be more to blame than the other ones. They both want to get reelected. You don't get reelected by taking stuff away. You get reelected by giving people things. But here's the reality. When I look at these numbers, I know 2022 tax receipts were up because capital gains were high because the market did well, uh, you know, or, or didn't do well. Excuse me. Here's the reality. When I look at these numbers and then I look at the fact that that like it or not, don't don't come after the messenger, middle class effective, meaning post-deduction tax rates, federal tax rates, income tax rates are the lowest they've ever been. All I can smell are higher taxes ahead for everybody or maybe 50 trillion in debt. And it doesn't matter. Well, I think it does matter because you start to get into a bit of a vicious circle because, first of all, income is going down, as you said. Gross domestic income has actually been negative for in recent quarters. And so tax receipts go down and the government has to finance more via deficits. And that means they're in capital markets competing for savings, which drives up interest rates, which drive up their cost of servicing their debt. So you get into a bit of a vicious circle there. And in terms of of those tax rates on middle America, I, I think it is important that politicians start being honest with American taxpayers because the way we keep hearing folks talk about, oh, if only we had a European style social welfare system. Well, the way Europe pays for their social transfers is by really socking it to the middle class. So you look at the Nordic countries, and if you're earning about 1.2, 1.3, 1.4 times the average wage, you are already paying the top marginal income tax rate. And on top of that, you're probably facing a 20% VAT. In contrast, over here in the United States, you have to be earning eight and a half times the average wage before you start facing the top marginal and, rates. And, and, but they're not, they're not going to, either they're not going to tell the truth, Tyler, or it's going to be obfuscation, Senator. You know, and listen, the reality is, 
I get it. Corporations and rich people, they are easy targets. They're yeah. easy. So you're not doing your fair share. How many times have we heard that? Okay, fi- fine. Guess what? Let's tomorrow raise taxes to 100% on the richest 10% of the country, which, by the way, is like 150000 a year in income. Tax every dime they have. Tax every corporation to 50%. Are we making any real dent in the debt? No, it's it's the no, fallacy. We're not. That all you, math. Yeah, yeah, all you've got to do is tax rich people, and this problem goes away. That's absolutely not true. But you also have to look at revenue, revenue equality. What makes sense? What doesn't make sense? Because when you're asking people to pay more, you can't ask people in the middle class to pay more when they hear eight and nine percent tax rates for the wealthiest among us. And so there needs to be a real discussion about tax equality, but there also needs to be a real discussion about reductions in what we spend. You know, you can say, okay, this debt limit, we saw a big discussion there. No, you didn't. The big spending items, which was Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, were completely taken off the table without looking at how we're going to revamp those systems to provide solvency going into the future with the trust funds. I just don't know, Tyler, if, uh, if, uh, if honesty pays if you're a politician. It's hard, <laughs> right? It's hard to tell people that. Sorry. It is hard to tell people that, and uh, especially when I, I think Senator Heitkamp made a very good point about the demographics. We've, we've been here before in terms of having a very high debt level. After 1945, we had debt-to-GDP ratio, uh, debt ratio mm-hmm. above 100%. But we had major growth tailwinds back then, and we had major demographic tailwinds yep. back then. And I think those tailwinds are headwinds today. Tyler Goodspeed, Senator Heidi Heidkamp, thank you both very much. Well, conversation is not over. All right, coming up, one entrepreneur's unbelievable personal and professional turnaround story. It's Make It Mondays next. All right, we're having a little fun here on the set with cookies. Anyway, it is time for our Make It Monday series. Spotlight some amazing entrepreneurs across America. Tonight, meet Janie Deegan, the inventor of what's called the pie crust cookie, and it's good, and the founder of Janie's life-changing baked goods. Here's her story. Welcome to Jamie's Life-Changing Baked Goods. I've always loved to bake, but baking in particular is like a very controlled, but like extremely artistic outlet. I'm Jamie Deegan, I'm 35 years old. I'm the inventor of the pie crust cookie. And last year, my bakery brought in over a million dollars in sales. I invented the pie crust cookie, I think in 2017. The bottom is a disc of flaky pie crust. The middle is pie filling, and we do dozens and dozens of flavors. I had like lived in fear for the first 25 years of my life. I got sober when I was 25 and prior to being sober or getting sober, I was homeless and penniless. I was like a shell of a person. When I got sober, I just was so filled with shame about where I had been and, and who I had become in the past couple of years that um, it was really hard for me to look people in the eyes. And baking was like this beautiful artistic outlet. It was like a way for me in early sobriety to connect with people. The first couple years of the bakery were really, really rough. Some days it would be like 20 hours a day. During COVID, it was obviously harder, but my two employees and I spent like a lot of time figuring out 
how we could scale our business as an e-commerce based business. On an average month, we sell anywhere between 30 and 45,000 cookies. And in our busier months, we're selling about 60 or 70,000 cookies. I'm so grateful for my life. I constantly feel like I'm playing dress up and I hope that never stops because that's like where the gratitude comes from is that it feels special and it feels exciting and I hope that I never stop feeling like I'm playing dress up. And J.D. Deegan joining us now, uh, and I'm and I'm going to say, and it's not because you're here and you're very nice, this is legit <laughs> the best cookie I've ever, the pot, what is a pot, first off, amazing journey. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. So good penniless, to be here. Penniless to this and, and good for you on, on, on all your success. Thank what? You in the world is a pie crust cookie and why does it taste so good? Uh, so much butter, but. You talk, you do the rest of the show, I'm gonna eat. What a pie crust cookie is, is it's a three layered cookie. The bottom is a disc of flaky pie crust. The middle is drop dead delicious filling and the top is buttery streusel. So it's like three layers, the best bite of a pie. It's in like, a form. yeah, it's like if a pie and like some sort of German strudel had a baby and the baby was a cookie and then I ate the cookie. I'm gonna put that on my packaging. That's what I'm going to put on my package. So tell us about your, you and I were chatting. Tell us about your journey and not just personal, but professional. Sure. So I uh, was homeless until I was 25 due to addiction or, or from 24 to 25, I was homeless. Yeah, you had a major alcohol problem. Yeah, right? Major alcohol and drug problem and got sober at 25. Congratulations. Thank you. I have 10 years sober last month. So pretty Amazing. good. Um, and so I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life when I got sober and I loved baking and it just sort of brought me joy. And I was able to like slowly but surely like, you know, sort of bootstrap a business and, and we've grown to three locations. We just opened a third location last month. They're all in Manhattan? So, yeah, they're all in Manhattan, our newest. What's one next? Next is we really want to expand in grocery stores and be more of a, a national brand. We have a big growing e-commerce business. You can order our cookies on JanieBakes.com. And so it's sort of, you know, how can we continue to grow and become more of a household name? Well, all you got to do, is, I, 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 Sarah Blakely of Spanx, yeah. she used to amazing. kind of, she, so she used amazing. to sort of like basically sell her goods herself. Yeah. Just get any buyer yeah. to eat one of these cookies <laughs> and I guarantee you, I'm going to ask you to go into your Rolodex. I know, I know. <laughs> Rolodex? How old are you? 35. Janie Deegan, Janie's Life Changing Cookies. My life may have been changed by this. Congrats yeah. on your success. Thank, Thank you. you. So All right. Much. To learn more about CBC Make It, you can go to cnbcmakeit.com, subscribe to the newsletter. You got the QR thing on your screen, whatever. By the way, speaking of cookies, we're going to have to buy a bunch of these and send them to those people, although not for a couple of weeks. That is Chelsea Whittemore, one of our lead producers here, and her lucky husband, Dan. They got married this past weekend in upstate New York. Look at that. Chelsea looks beautiful. Dan looks great. Congratulations to the couple. They're on a two-week honeymoon. Chelsea, I'm not going to lie. We miss you. We want you to come home, but enjoy your honeymoon. We'll have cookies waiting for you. We don't eat them. See you tomorrow night. Shark Tank is next. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.